want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the first book of the New Testament, to Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 17 again this morning. So Matthew chapter 17, if you're in the Blue Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 822. So again, Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14. Uh, last week we looked at the transfiguration. This week I'm going to begin reading uh, in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, now the, the word they there is referring to the Lord Jesus and the three disciples who were with him, Peter and Paul and James. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, to Jesus, and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning um, for your word. Uh, we thank you for how it depicts and gives us and shows us the disciples. And we recognize as we go through that there may be many senses in which we are not so different from how they are. Uh, they have, have followed. And many of us have followed. We've trusted in Christ. Yet they are lacking, significantly lacking. And many of us are significantly lacking in our faith. And so we pray as we look at this passage that, that you will open our eyes by the work of your Holy Spirit and help us to see, help us to have eyes to see, to have ears to understand, to take this in and to see where you have intended that it apply to us. Uh, and we pray, therefore, that we would be those of greater faith as a result. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is a, a, a Renaissance painting by Raphael that's called The Transfiguration. 
Uh, and it shows the event that we read about uh, last week out of, out of chapter 17, right there at the beginning of, of chapter 17. But it depicts that event in a very unique way. Uh, now, the upper half, if you look at this painting, the upper half of the painting shows the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, uh, which was this, this event when Jesus took three of his disciples Peter and James and John, and they ascended up high on a mountain. And on top of the mountain, we read that Jesus was transfigured before them, that he was changed in a, in a glorious manner. Uh, and in this painting, uh, you see that glorious scene at the top with light shining all around it. Uh, and there's this b- bright cloud in the, the background. And you can see on the faces of the, the people the wonder and amazement uh, as Raphael tries to capture this sense that you're, you're peering up into uh, heaven itself. Uh, and so that's the top half of the painting. But the bottom half of the painting shows the world that, that Jesus and these three disciples came down into as they descended down from the mountain and they returned to the, the real world that, that we see around us and that we live in ourselves. And it, it showed that event that, that picture showed the event in the bottom half of the painting that I just read. And the picture is full of darkness. Uh, and you can see that the crowd of people there are in a state of distress and dissension. You know, you got this boy that is depicted here uh, in, uh, a, a, again, a state of distress. And he's got a wild look on his face as he's kind of looking up. Uh, and behind him is his father. And you can kind of see his father's pleading with the disciples, the nine disciples who have been left uh, down uh, behind. And it's almost as if he's saying, help us. Uh, and so you've got this in one picture, this glorious hope. And then down below, the misery, the suffering, the darkness. Now, even though you may not be real big on studying Renaissance paintings, uh, nor am I, yet I think this, this painting does a good job of depicting what's going on uh, here as we read this passage. Uh, it, it, it's a passage in which we move from one scene, uh, which is, is glorious. There's a sense of the believer being able to look to see what's ahead, not in great detail, but just to see that it's glorious, uh, that which is ahead and, and full of wonder, uh, but then at the same time uh, to be able to see coming down the mountain a return to the reality of this world, which is a world that is in great need of help. Now, it was 2,000 years ago, it was a world that was in great need of help, and today it is a world that's in great need of help. And, and that's not a surprise, is it, to anybody who lives in this world today and has been living uh, here for some time. There's pain, there's sickness, there is disease, there's injustice, uh, there's addiction, there's anger, there's killing. And sometimes it is heaped upon even the most vulnerable in this world, upon even children and those who are weak. But again, 
This is not surprising to the believer. We know, out of God's Word, we know that we live in a fallen world. And actually, we know why things are the way they are, that it goes way back. It's about sin and rebellion against God. And that it began at one point with, with one man who rebelled against God, and it has continued through the centuries with every single person. Um, sin being of sin, and sin in their hearts, rebellion. Uh, it is a sin-filled world, and each of us are experiencing the groaning of creation. Uh, Romans chapter 8 that we hear about. Uh, that's what we experience. Some of it is our own heart. Some of it is the contribution of uh, the world around us and the fact that sin is here. Now, I'm not trying to be overly grim. I'm just trying to say that we know that these things are true. It's not a surprise. And it wasn't a surprise to Jesus and to Peter and, and uh, to John and his brother James as they came down from the mountain and they encountered this scene that was before them. And so even though in this painting that I described, uh, this passage brings out the darkness that we see there, the brokenness in the world, especially in contrast to that which is above, that's not the main problem that is uh, found in this passage. The main problem that's here is not even in the afflictions of this boy uh, that we read in, in other accounts uh, we read the severity of what he was facing. Uh, and one account that says it was even since birth that he's been experiencing these things. Uh, it's, it's not also in the distress that his father felt uh, as he uh, was crying out for help for his son. And we can imagine what he was going through inside, what he was uh, experiencing. And it's not even in the unclean spirit that was causing within this boy the contortions and, and his uh, seizures. No, the main problem in this account is found with the words of the Father. If you look with me at verse 16, uh, and the Father expresses to Jesus, He says, I brought Him to your disciples, and they could not heal Him. The problem here is that there was no help. And when there's no help, there is no hope in this world. We know this is a world that's full of darkness and full of affliction, full of sin. Uh, and yet here we have the representatives of Jesus, those who have followed Him, those who have listened to His teaching, those who have been commissioned by Him to be lights in this world. And when it came to them, and we do see later, uh, again, a second time, this represented Jesus saying uh, that He's going to be leaving them. And so there's the sense that they're going to be here, He's going to be gone, and yet, here they are, they're helpless. They're unable to help the situation. It says that they could do nothing. And Jesus points out the reason for that. A little bit later, when they asked him, they, they take him aside and they ask him, why? Why were we unable to do anything? And he says, verse 20, because of your little faith. And what he's pointing out here is 
that little faith has consequences. And that's very important for us uh, to recognize. Little faith has consequences. Let me point out the obvious here, and that is that there are degrees of faith. There is a weak faith, and clearly there is a strong faith. And what Jesus is pointing out is that having little faith uh, is, is not a good thing. It is detrimental. Uh, we don't want to remain there. Now, there's something else that needs to be brought out here. There are two different ways that we talk about faith, uh, and, and I want to distinguish these. Uh, I want us to realize Jesus is not talking here about saving faith, the faith that saves. That must come first. Uh, in order for someone to have faith inside abiding faith, which is described in this passage, they first have to have received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. Uh, that's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave, He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him would have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him, that's faith, receives and rests upon Him and upon what He has done. Notice, you either have faith or you don't have, have faith when it comes to saving faith. Uh, think about the disciples. They, all 12 of them, except for one, had saving faith. They had, they had turned and they had followed the Lord Jesus. They had left behind uh, the, the ways of their life before and they had clung to Jesus, yet they themselves have weak faith and strong faith. So two different types uh, one is saving faith, the other is this abiding faith, and that is for those who have already chosen to follow Jesus. And so we can know for us, day after day, as we live our lives, that our faith can be weak or our faith can be strong. What this passage is bringing out is that there are consequences, significant consequences for a weak faith. Uh, and we need to see that. We need to understand it. And so uh, there are a couple of things. Uh, we can see here the consequences of having little faith in a couple of areas. First of all, in the desperation of others who are in need. Consequences of having little faith for those who are in desperation, uh, in need of help. Secondly, we can see the consequences in the displeasure of our God. And then finally, we're given here, fortunately, a, a, a diagnosis or a remedy for little faith. So first of all, we can see the consequences of having little faith in the, the desperation, the despair of others who are in need. Um, you know, all it takes for us in order to to see that need is to look around us, to look at the world uh, around us. Sometimes it may be in our own families. Uh, but look at the world, including right here in Cherokee County. Look around us and we will see the great need. Now, there are many different kinds of needs, uh, but at its root, the problem uh, that has led to that the greatest need that people have is singular. There is only one. And it is sin. It's rebellion against God. 
And secondly, not only is the, is the problem singular, but the answer to that problem is singular as well. It is Christ. And yet what must not happen for those who are in need, and especially those who recognize their need, is that they are left in that state of desperation, not having that answer, which is Christ. And that's where this passage comes in. The consequences of little faith are seriousness are, are serious. Now, in this account, it is the father of the child, of the, the boy who is in desperation. And we can if you look at verse fifteen, you can see that from his, his words he's saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. And we see that his son was severely afflicted with seizures. Uh, in, in one account, or right here, it says that he, he often falls into the fire and falls into the water. And we've got another account that goes into far greater detail. Uh, and we can, we, we can see that uh, he would be thrown down onto the ground uh, and he would foam at the mouth. Uh, and, and therefore, the word that's used here is translated here as epilepsy. Some places it's translated as seizures. I think there's a better way of, of translating the Greek word uh, because literally, here's what it means, that the boy was moonstruck. Now, it's coming from the standpoint of people who had observed this boy. They, they saw him uh, thrown to the ground, foaming at the mouth, unable, it says, to speak. Uh, and, and so they thought he was crazy. He was moonstruck. Uh, all of this added to the father's desperation. And we find out here that the boy's condition was not epilepsy. It wasn't just some wasting disease that he was afflicted with, but he was possessed by a demon. Uh, in other words, what's being depicted here is control by the evil spiritual realm which existed in that day, which, of course, exists in our day as well. Remember what Paul later say, Ephesians chapter 6, a place that really states this clearly. He said, for we, he was speaking about us, uh, and so we can think about each one of us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what's being represented here. And that's what the father of the boy was really up against. And that's what Jesus and his three disciples were descending down into. That's why that, that painting, Raphael's painting, was so dark in the lower half. Uh, and it is the world in which you and I live in today. Now, this desperation, this uh, despair of the Father was really just a window into the sin and the misery of this world in which we live today. If we, if we do open our eyes so that we're able to see people everywhere, as we see in another place in Ephesians, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, it is a realm of darkness, and it is a realm of misery. And if our eyes are open to see it, then we come to understand, yes, that is the world in which we live. 
Uh, there are many solutions that are out there to try to fix the problems that exist. But I ask you, go back. Go back hundreds of years. Uh, did those, have, we, have we come a long way in fixing those problems? Look at, look at war. Uh, look at families that are broken. Uh, you can go on down the list one after another. Look at children who are afflicted. Uh, and the answer is no. This is what we are up against. This is what the father was facing when he came to help, uh, get help from Jesus. But when he got there, Jesus wasn't there. And so nine of his representatives were. And so what did he do? He turned to them and asked for help. And, and again, I'll, I'll remind us that this passage uh, tells us the last couple of verses uh, where Jesus said that he was going to be leaving them. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. He'll be raised again on the third day. And it says they were greatly distressed. And, and so remember, all of this is preparing these representatives of Christ for that time when he will be gone. Uh, now, you may recall that back in Matthew chapter 10, it's been a while since we've been back there, uh, but these disciples had already been given gifts of healing, the authority to heal in Jesus' name, the ability to cast out demons, uh, gifts that today ceased. They ceased shortly after this time period. Uh, they're not needed today to supplement the ordinary gifts because of what we have. But his disciples had those gifts. Uh, and they had done these works of healing of, and even of casting out demons. Yet when this man cried out for help, they couldn't help. They couldn't do anything to help him in his hour of need. And the reason that they couldn't help, which is given to them later, was because they were of little faith. And what was the consequence here? It was that this man was left in his desperation and in his misery uh, without help in this world. Now we do see that then Jesus came down from the mountain and he said, bring the boy to me. And he cast out the demon. Uh, but what these men were there to do, they were unable to do because they have little faith. You know, when little faith is there, nothing happens. The status quo remains. People are left dead in their sins and trespasses. The gospel is not working in their hearts. Now, I'll tell you, the good reformed answer to this question uh, would be that for anyone who cries out to the Lord because they know their own misery uh, and they've, they've, they've looked upon Christ and they've seen Him for who He truly is and so they cast themselves upon Christ, anyone who does that will be saved. And that's true and it's a wonderful truth, a wonderful comfort that we have and a blessed gospel that we are able to take to others. And it's something that we're able to say, this doesn't depend upon you or anything else. If you simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is wonderful. But recognize that the Lord uses means to deliver that gospel. And the means is right here. It is His church and so just as Jesus was showing His disciples 
that when they had small faith, little faith, that people aren't helped, we need to recognize that as well. When our faith is small, when it's little, there are consequences. And that is that people are not given this great gift that otherwise they desperately need inside. And therefore, the desperation, the despair remains. Remember, there's only one answer to that. One answer to desperation and despair in this world. And that is Christ. That's, uh, that's one reason uh, for these consequences. Second reason is the displeasure that it brings to God. Now, anyone who has come to know the Lord knows something about what He has done for you, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Anyone who has felt the warmth of His pleasure upon you is going to be someone who is very reticent to displease Him. And if you think about it, it only makes sense. If you've been loved with a great love, you're going to be led to love in return. And you're not going to want to pain the one who loved you. The Lord is patient. But remaining in a place of little faith brings great displeasure to our God. Uh, you know, looking at this passage, I, I wonder what was on the faces of these nine disciples when they heard these words from their Lord and Master. Uh, now, this is just after the, the, the boy's father had told Jesus that the disciples were unable to heal his son. Look at Jesus' words, verse 17. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now notice there, this isn't a, a direct rebuke from Jesus just to the disciples. But he does it in this way. He, he doesn't separate them out from the unbelieving world out there when he speaks. They're just a part of that faithless and twisted generation. And to be honest, this is a severe rebuke to the disciples. Do you remember when, this is in, in uh, Exodus, uh, when Moses and his assistant Joshua, they were up on the mountain, and Moses received the Ten Commandments. He had gone into the cloud. He had spoken to the Lord, and uh, the Lord had given him all the instructions. And here are, are Joshua and, and Moses coming down from the mountain, and they hear loud sounds of, of shouting and of worship the people below. But they weren't worshiping God, were they? They were worshiping the golden calf that they had made with their own hands. And you remember the Lord's displeasure uh, toward this people? We can see it in Moses' actions. What did he do? He, he took the Ten Commandments, these two tablets, and he he smashed them to smithereens and uh, he took the golden calf and he, he destroyed the calf and in that we can see God's displeasure now this is not to that extent but the type of displeasure is the same now, you might be a a tempted to ask why uh, 
why would the Lord be displeased in this way? What, wasn't it just that the disciples were unable to perform a task that was required of them? That's actually not why Jesus, at the heart of it, was, was pained and displeased. His, his displeasure came from the reason that they were unable to heal. Their little faith. And what we need to do is to understand the nature of little faith. Little faith is a a faith and a trust that doesn't persevere. Little faith is a, a faith that leans upon its own understanding. Uh, it goes for a little while looking to the Lord, but then when it doesn't see the results that it expects, it stops. Uh, and it falls apart. Little faith fails to acknowledge Him in all things. It fails to, to glorify Him. Now, don't get me wrong. A person who has little faith does know the Lord. They are turned to Him in order to have any faith. Yet, in effect, they're no different from the rest of the world. Remember that passage we read earlier out of Philippians uh, chapter 2? It was our, our confession of sin where Paul was exhorting believers to be, he said, children of God without blemish uh, in the midst of a, a crooked and twisted generation. And he said, therefore, uh, you, you should shine like lights in the world. And what was Paul saying? He, he was saying that because of your faith, because you reflect the Lord Jesus, that you should be different from the world around us. But what we find here in, in, in verse 17 was that the disciples who are of little faith looked almost like the rest of the world. Uh, now, that's something that we are to bring home and apply to ourselves uh, and ask that question, do we shine like lights in this world? Is there a difference there in the way that we live our lives and the one that we look to and that we trust in, that we cling to? Uh, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. The question is, where are we with that? Uh, Jesus wants us to hear his disappointment uh, when we live like the rest of the world. He's saying, look at the consequences of being satisfied as you live your life with little faith. It brings great displeasure to your God. You know, I can think of times, and I've shared some of them here, uh, when I was, I was young, and when I knew that I had greatly displeased my dad. Uh, and I can, I can also remember certain physical suffering that I endured as a result because of my misdeeds. Uh, but I can tell you that most of the time, maybe not always true, but most of the time, the internal pain that I felt having displeased my father was greater than that outward suffering that I had to endure. And think about it, that's with an earthly father who loved with an imperfect love. How much greater should be our, our motivation to avoid displeasing our heavenly father who loves with a perfect love? You know, the Lord wants his relationship with us to be in a right place. And that's a relationship in which we are acting in accordance with the love that we've been shown. 
True love is never a one-way street, is it? It's always two-way. We experience His kindness and His goodness and His mercy toward us, His grace, and we're driven to love Him in return so that we should have an aversion to displeasing our God. Uh, We must never remain those of little faith. And that brings us to the last point. Uh, We see in this passage a a diagnosis, uh, a, a remedy for little faith. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus why their attempt at casting out the demon failed, Jesus said that it was because of their little faith But then look at the rest of what he said, verse 20. He goes on to diagnose it for them. He says, for truly I say to you, that that means listen up. You've got to listen to this. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You know, in comparing faith, here to a mustard seed, or he said the grain of a mustard seed. Uh, It it was known to be one of the tiniest of seeds. And so the thing that he's emphasizing here is the small size that's needed. He's saying that in order to relate to God in a right way and to have the power of God available to you, that's what faith is, right? It's the power of God expressed. You don't need anything great. Whether it's great influence or great resources. We don't need a great big building. Uh, we don't need uh, all kinds of, uh, of, of money, huge amounts of money that, that add up and, and finally faith comes out. No, what he says you need is just a, a mere grain of genuine faith. In other words, a very simple but genuine reliance upon God and submission to God. Uh, remember the, the definition of faith out of Hebrews 11 earlier. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, there is an assurance there. There is a conviction there. It's just that it's of things that are not seen. We can't see them with our eyes. A weak faith does not continue in reliance upon God and submission to God when it doesn't see the evidence. It doesn't see the return. That's a weak faith. And this was the problem for the disciples. It wasn't simply that they, they lacked confidence in their own ability. You know, we can, we can see that. They, they seemed very confident that they would be able to do this work, that they'd be able to cast out this demon. Uh, they seemed truly surprised that they were unable The problem was that they lacked a dependence upon Jesus. And so they lacked access to the power of God, which is what is available through faith, and which is what they would have had to have had because of the demonic power that they were up against. You know, think for a moment about one of those uh, huge skyscraper cranes that you see maybe downtown Atlanta. They're building one of these big tall buildings and and they got this crane there it's it's massive in its size yet if you look closely you can see up near the top there's this little hut that's there and i'm not sure exactly how they get a person up there 
Uh, but there's got to be a person that goes into that hut, and inside that hut, there's something like a, a little joystick. Uh, there's some other controls, but at the heart of it, there is a joystick that gives them access to this massive engine that does the work of raising the crane, of lifting up great uh, uh, amounts and weights of materials. But notice where the power comes from. Uh, it is that great engine there, but all that's required is this little joystick that's there. Think about the operator. They're not just there doing their own thing, but they operate that crane only in submission to the general contractor who's, who, who knows exactly what's being built, knows exactly what's needed, and so they follow those directions to a T, just as they're told. And so they're able to access all of that power in behalf of the general contractor, but only to the extent that they stay in sync with what the general contractor desires. You get the picture there. When you possess even a grain of genuine faith, just like that little joystick of the crane operator, which is small, yet it gives access to the power of God in order to accomplish great things in behalf of of Christ, in order to, to, to do the works of the kingdom, the works that God, who you can think of as being the great general contractor, that He has directed that need to be done. Think about why. Because you're together with Him in mind and heart. What does that look like in daily life? It looks like obedience to Him. It looks like obedience to His Word because you're working together with Him. You're working toward one end. And what, what has to be there always? You're working together. You can even think about the, the crane operator and the general contractor. What do they have to have there? They've got to have communication. And it's got to be there often. And the same is true with us. That's prayer. Prayer is one of the fruits of true faith. Those who are of great faith are often, often, before the Lord in prayer. Uh, it is a fruit of faith. It's also the operating environment of a true and lively faith, and it will be there continually. That communication, the being together in one mind and one heart. Uh, think again about the operator. Uh, even though the operator can't visualize what it is that's being created, can't even at times see what the next step is, who knows? The general contractor. Who knows? Uh, the Lord. And He provides us exactly what we need. You know, what a, what a great picture we have of that in Hebrews chapter 11 that I read earlier. These were men and women who were able to access the very power of God. Not, not in and of themselves, not just for their own desires, but in conjunction with the Lord. And what do we see with those men and with those women again and again and again? Think about who they were. We see how weak they were in and of themselves, yet their dependence was upon the Lord. And their submission was to the Lord. And therefore, they had access to the power of God, the power that overcomes 
addiction. The power that overcomes an anger that builds up inside. The power that overcomes the circumstances of our lives so that we are able to live out our lives with peace and with security and with an absence of anxiety. Uh, and so that we are able to do the Lord's work. So that we are able to be those who are agents and instruments of His delivering His message to a dark and to a needy world. The Lord doesn't want us to be those who are of little faith, but He wants us to shine like lights in the rest of the world. Uh, you know, of, of those in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, those were who were who of faith, verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Notice that just as within Raphael's painting, uh, they were able from the darkness below to look to the light that is above and to know for certain that hope that lies ahead, that place that the Lord has prepared for them. You know, Jesus would say uh, just a short time later to the disciples, I go and I prepare a place for you, that where I am you may come and be with me. And then he continued on with words of comfort. We are called to be the same, to be those who live today by a lively faith and those who depend upon the Lord Jesus day after day that we might be used by him as instruments in this world. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You uh, for the ways that You have provided and the ways that You have ordained things. Uh, Lord, that, that as we think about these words of the Lord Jesus, His disappointment, the, the little faith, the way that He spoke to His disciples, that we can see at the same time what He was doing was building them up. And He was giving them what they needed in helping them to know how to depend upon their God. And therefore, we can go further in Your Word and we can see how they were used in powerful ways to lay down the foundation of the church uh, and to be great instruments of Yours. We pray that You will help us in the same way. Help us with our little faith and help us to be those who more and more live with a great faith, looking to our God and depending upon our God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.